Well, hello everyone. This is JB with Not By Works Ministries. It is a Tuesday, February the 21st, and time once again for our weekly prophecy night. And once again, I am doing this uh, via recording instead of our normal face-to-face meeting in uh, Sedalia, Colorado at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, this is week four in our series, and this was actually planned to be done remotely because we are on the road in Florida for a couple of conferences. I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, unfortunately, last week for part three, we also had to do a remote recording. Uh, that one I did uh, from my home office tucked away in the tall timbers of the mountains in Colorado. Uh, but that was because of inclement weather, and that was not planned. But uh, I appreciate everybody uh, checking out those videos. We had a huge response last week, even though we couldn't meet face-to-face. But this is week four, and all along we have planned to be doing this one remotely because, again, I am on the road. So uh, next week on Tuesday, February the 28th, Lord willing, my plan is to be back in Colorado uh, for uh, Sunday services at Plum Creek Chapel, as well as for our Tuesday night prophecy night on February 28th. So I I beg your indulgence and certainly apologize for not being able to meet face-to-face two weeks in a row. Again, only one of those was planned that way. Uh, But uh, the Lord's in control, and so we're going to be doing this week's Prophecy Night once again by video. I hope you'll spread the word and encourage folks to uh, check out the video or the podcast. Remember, these are also posted uh, as audio-only messages on all of our uh, podcast channels. So I mentioned that I'm in Florida at the moment, and I uh, just finished up a wonderful conference at Liberty Baptist in Claremont, Florida. It was called uh, What Is This World Coming To? I spoke seven times over the last two days, and while it was exhausting, it was exhilarating as well. A wonderful church, great crowd, people really from all over the state of Florida came out, really appreciated the hospitality and love and warmth and Christian brotherhood that we felt there with uh, Pastor Duane and, and the church body there at Liberty Baptist. But all seven of those sessions are now posted, and uh, if you have not had a chance to go back and watch those, I encourage you to do so. You can go to notbyworks.org and click on the Videos tab, and you'll see them there listed uh, with the most recent one first. So it goes session seven, six, five, four, and so forth, all the way to the first session, which took place on Saturday. Uh, so I hope you'll watch those or, again, listen to them on our podcast channel. Uh, you can get to that by notbyworks.org slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts uh, on your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. Uh, so we are continuing our look here in uh, our Prophecy Night series at the stage being set. And we've spent the first three weeks, and we're going to pick that up again tonight, talking about the stage being set prophetically. And so just to review, we talked about uh, prophecies relating to Israel and how the granting of statehood to Israel back in 1948 was a huge indication that the stage is being set. We looked at the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle of Gog and Magog and saw how the stage is being set for potentially for that battle with a lot of the players that are mentioned there uh, in Ezekiel 38. Uh, also being mentioned every day in the mainstream news. And then we uh, spent some time looking at the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet and uh, talked about how throughout the past 2,000 years at various key moments, evil men have risen to take center stage and right now is no different. In fact, some of the most evil men in the history of the world are uh, in the helm at the helm today of key world positions, key leadership positions, business, politics, you name it. Uh, so we looked at that, uh, and then we, last week we looked at the depopulation movement, and that was a, 
a heavy one. We, we looked at a lot of uh, information scripturally about how those who hate God love death and how they have been trying to kill, steal, and destroy at Satan's behest. Uh, really, uh, since he got kicked out of heaven, uh, he approached Adam and Eve in the garden trying to kill them uh, by convincing them that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would not die, which in fact God had said they would. And so we have two more subsections, if you will, that I'd like us to look at as we think about the stage being set uh, prophetically. And I want to get through one of these uh, tonight. I had planned to maybe try to get through uh, the final two tonight, uh, but it's just too much information and too much material. So we're just going to talk about how the increasing deception that is sweeping not only our country but the world and and not only the pagan world and the secular world but the church as well uh, is a clear indication uh, that uh, the sign of the sign of the times and that the the return of the Lord is getting closer and closer. Now this subject really has been a key theme throughout a lot of my conference speaking and and ministry uh, the last several years. Uh, largely because of the books that came out last year, The Spirit of the Antichrist, Volumes 1 and 2. Uh, The subtitle of that, most of you know by now, is called The Gathering Cloud of Deception. And the whole premise of those books, which are available at spiritoftheantichrist.org, if you'd like to check them out, uh, the whole premise of that is that the Antichrist is coming, capital A, as John tells us, uh, but he also goes on to say that many Antichrists have already come. In fact, he says the spirit of the Antichrist, that's where the title of my books comes from, is already at work in the world, 1 John 4, 3. And so that spirit is a deceptive spirit. By the way, uh, it's important, and I talked about this a little bit over the weekend, uh, some of what I'm going to say today in Prophecy Night overlaps with uh, one of the sessions that I did, session four, I think it was, on, uh, on Saturday. Actually, I think it might have been session three, now that I think back on it. But I talked about the great last days of deception. And I realize that a lot of you may listen to any podcast we put out there. And so in this case, it's going to seem repetitive. But remember, we reach a variety of audiences. And some people would listen to the conference messages or they were live streaming the conference this weekend. uh, But they might not be the same ones that listen to our Tuesday prophecy night. So if some of this is repetitive or sounds familiar, it's because I just talked about some of it in a different context on Saturday. Uh, but I, I mentioned what I'm about to say Saturday, and, and that is the distinction between the last days and the end times. And that's an important distinction to keep in mind. As you see on the screen there, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 1 that these are the last days, that uh, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So the entire church age is, in fact, the last days. And the Bible tells us that in these last days, scoffers will come, and they will be mocking anyone who continues to faithfully look for the return of the Lord and expect uh, Jesus Christ to come back and uh, rescue us from this present evil age. Anybody that believes in the rapture uh, or believes in a literal return of Christ to establish his kingdom on earth is often mocked and uh, you know, just looked down upon. And I, I run into that again and again at conferences. But as you look at our end times chart that we've, we've displayed many times here at Prophecy Night uh, in the first three weeks, I just want to clarify the timeline here. So the church age, which is obviously not drawn to scale on this chart, on this, chart uh, this chart is focused on the end times. And so we're zooming in, if you will, on everything that happens from the rapture forward. But I do have the church marked out on here. 
And we know it was a mystery, according to Ephesians 3. And we know that this is what the Bible calls the last days. Uh, because if you look at a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages, the church age is indeed the final age prior to the inauguration of the kingdom. Uh, and so uh, the end times is different from uh, the church age and from the last days. The end times refers to everything beginning with the rapture and going all the way through the last fulfilled prophecy mentioned in Scripture, and that is the recreation of a new heavens and a new earth, often referred to as the eternal state. So we are living in the last days today. Now, the church, the body of Christ, has been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Uh, but what is unique is that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more we see the stage being set. And although in many ways the stage has been being set for centuries uh, in certain ways, and again, we could go back to, as I talked about uh, uh, on uh, Sunday, yesterday, at uh, the conference there in Claremont, uh, you know, I gave you my top ten list of signs of the times that indicate we're living in the last of the last days. And one of those was 1948 when Israel became a nation. And that's been, you know, some 75 years ago or so uh, now. And so uh, there's certainly the stage has been being set all along as God is working out his sovereign plan of the ages. And Satan, meanwhile, is doing his best to harness his resources and his demonic agents and his earthly co-conspirators and earthly human accomplices to try to, uh, you know, take over the world. But what we see in the last of the last days here are some key indications that uh, the stage is being set. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about setting the stage prophetically. But the Bible warns us that in these last times, in these last days rather, perilous times will come. Perilous times will come, and those times are upon us, I have to tell you. Again, many antichrists have come, the Bible tells us in 1 John 2.18. That's little a antichrist. We certainly know that the antichrist, capital A, is coming, but many antichrists are already on the scene helping to set the stage. And, and here's the key. 2 Timothy 3.13 reminds us that evil men and impostors are growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So one of the key ways in which the stage is being set prophetically and we can, that, that we can notice is that deception is becoming more and more blatant. It's, it's, it's amazing the, the, how easy it is to deceive people. But this shouldn't surprise us because Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.13 that this type of thing will get worse and worse. So as I mentioned, we are living in the last days. It's the church age, and we know that uh, things are getting worse and worse. Ever since sin entered the world, uh, deception has been getting worse and worse and worse. It's partly because of uh, the depravity of man in general, but also because of Satan's uh, plan that he's working out to try to deceive the whole world. The book of Revelation tells us someday uh, after he is captured that he was the one who was trying to deceive the whole world. That was his plan all along. So the bottom line is we are more deceived today than we were yesterday, and we will be more deceived tomorrow than we are today. And my goal in writing the two books and in some of the uh, things that we're going to be talking about not only tonight but in the weeks to come on our Tuesday Prophecy Night series, uh, my goal is to hopefully awaken people to this deception and, uh, and help you see uh, you know, what's truth and what's fiction. And, of course, that's getting harder and harder to do. Uh, I've mentioned many times that Jesus really emphasizes the problem of deception 
when in his Olivet Discourse, which is the message he gave the night before he was betrayed or the day before he was betrayed on Wednesday of Passion Week from atop the Mount of Olives. And he's answering the question, what will be the sign of your coming? How will the nation of Israel be able to recognize when you've finally come to inaugurate the kingdom? Because he came at his first advent to be the suffering servant, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to be crowned with thorns instead of a king's crown. But he is coming back, just as the Bible tells us he is. Luke chapter 1 uh, reminds us that this same Jesus will so come in like manner as the disciples saw him ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is telling the nation of Israel what they should look for so that they will not be deceived like they were the first time he came and instead will embrace him, will believe the gospel and cry out as the prophecy tells us they will in Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The first time he came, they cried, uh, crucify him, crucify him. But the next time he comes, the nation uh, those who are believers within the nation anyway, which will represent the largest percentage the second time around of Israel, will cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what Joel the prophet was talking about when he said, uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered into the kingdom. Paul quotes this same verse in Romans 10 as he's talking about national deliverance for Israel. And the only way that can happen is if first individual Jews believe the gospel. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed. So we know that the future Antichrist is going to be deceiving people with signs and wonders. Uh, we know that according to 1 John 5, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one today. Deception is Satan's MO. It's his modus operandi. And uh, Jesus tells us he is a liar and the father of it. And uh, the Bible tells us that in the latter times, that is in the last part of the last days, People will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, Satan all along, of course, has been blinding men's hearts to the gospel. He's been deceiving men and women into thinking uh, you know, that they can save themselves or that they don't need a Savior or that they're good enough to overcome uh, the sin problem. They, he deceives people and blinds their hearts to the gospel in a number of ways. But what we see happening in these last of the last days is something on an entirely different Level. I referenced this verse uh, just a moment ago. It's from Revelation 12. Um, you know, at the midpoint of the future seven-year tribulation, the Bible tells us the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. See, right now he's trying to deceive the whole world, and he's doing everything he can to set the stage for a one-world political, religious, and economic system, a new world order, as the Luciferians themselves call it. But he is having to contend with the Spirit of God moving in and through the church, with believers who are following the convicting work of the Spirit in their lives. And there is a remnant present on the earth. But after the rapture, it will be a time of unrestrained evil. And he will you know, be able to more readily deceive people. Although, as we know from the book of Revelation, even during the tribulation period, there will be a remnant of untold numbers from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that are saved when they hear the gospel that is being preached initially by the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, but eventually by anyone else who's saved as they begin to tell other people about Christ. But at the midpoint of tribulation, this Satan, this great deceiver, is going to be cast to the earth so that he no longer has access to God. He's preparing for the final three and a half years of the battle. The battle lines are drawn. Things become less civil, if you will. 
and he's confined to the earth. And eventually he's going to be bound up for a thousand years after Christ comes back after the Battle of Armageddon during the 1,000 year millennial phase of Christ's kingdom so that he should deceive the nations no more, Revelation 20, verse 3. But then, hallelujah, at the end of the millennium, that's when the Bible tells us the devil who deceived them, there's that word again, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Remember, the beast and the false prophet, that's the Antichrist and his sidekick or second in command, they were cast into the lake of fire at the second coming, at the beginning of the millennium, prior to the start of the millennium. Here we are a thousand years later and they are still there. Uh, those two human beings that God uh, you know, tells us about in his word that Satan co-opted uh, to accomplish his goal, part of that unholy trinity of Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist and the false prophet, those two men are cast into the lake of fire, and they do not cease to exist. Uh, no human being ever ceases to exist. You either spend eternity in torment in hell if you've not received the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ, or you spend eternity in heaven with your loved ones that are believers and with Jesus and spending time in glory with God the Father. And so uh, those are the only two options. Uh, that Anybody that teaches you that when you die you cease to exist uh, is preaching a false gospel and does not know the Bible. Uh, but here we see back to Revelation 20 verse 10 that at the end of the millennium Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire with, and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They've been there for a thousand years. And notice how that verse ends. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Who's they? Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So that is their end, if you will. And so I've talked a lot in my teaching on the spirit of the Antichrist about how the Antichrist is going to use deception, all lying wonders, uh, 2 Thess 2.9 tells us. Unrighteous deception he's going to use, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And of course... He's going to deceive those who dwell on the earth uh, into taking the mark of the beast. And so clearly we see deception as a core element. Really, it's, it's part and parcel to who Satan is uh, of this rise of the new world order. And so what I want to do is take uh, the next few minutes to talk about something that I've talked about in other contexts before. I did not mention what we're about to talk about this weekend at the conference. It wasn't, uh, just didn't have time uh, in any of the sessions that I uh, led. Uh, but I do want to talk about it here as we talk about how the, the stage is being set prophetically because of the increase in deception, the, the marked, I should say, increase in deception. Everywhere you turn, you see deception on the rise. And this increasing deception, I believe, is a sign of the time. So, before I give you some examples of that in just a moment, uh, I want to walk you through uh, back to Genesis chapter 3, to Satan's initial uh, deception, that the first time he approached God's uh, crown jewel of creation, mankind, made in the image of God, and tempted him uh, with deception. And, and then, uh, and I've talked about this before, I've got a section in my book that talks about this in Volume 1, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, we go into the anatomy of deception. I, I can't remember what chapter, I think it's chapter toward the end, chapter 10 or 11. Uh, so this is nothing new if you've followed our ministry for a while, we've talked about this before, but it has been a while, and I thought since we're talking about increasing deception today, we would review this material. So you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and the Bible tells us the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
Now, we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture, and we also know just contextually and intuitively that the serpent is Satan. Even though the word Satan is not used there, the Bible tells us in the verse we just read a moment ago that that serpent of old is called the devil and Satan. So this is who we're talking about here. And the Bible tells us he was quite cunning. That Hebrew word cunning is the word achrum. Achrum, it means cunning, crafty, shrewd. It's only used 11 times in the Old Testament and actually... A couple of times, or a few times, it's used in a positive sense. And depending on the context, Ahurum can mean uh, prudent, shrewd in a good way, wise in that sense. But here in Genesis 3.1, it's used to describe an evil purpose and an evil agenda. The serpent was more cunning, the Bible says, than any beast of the field. And Genesis 3.1 here is actually connected in the Hebrew text. Remember, there were no verse divisions or chapter divisions. Uh, we put those in many, many, many years later, 1500s AD, in fact, to help uh, be able to understand and study God's Word and find passages more easily and be able to talk with one another and say, hey, let's look at this verse. Well, you can cite chapter and verse and, and go right to it. Uh, otherwise, you'd have trouble finding the, the, the sections. But in the original text, when the quill hit the sheepskin, so to speak, there was no verse and chapter division. So chapter 2, verse 25 of Genesis kind of has a word play here with the word in Genesis 3.1. We, we read that Adam and Eve were naked, which is achumim in Hebrew. And here we read in chapter 3, verse 1, that the serpent was crafty, achrum. In other words, Adam and Eve's nakedness represented the fact that they were innocent, oblivious to evil, blind to where the traps might lay. Whereas Satan did and would use his craftiness, his achrum, if you will, to take advantage of their ignorance. The tempter, uh, of course, was a serpent, Satan in the form of a snake. And we know, as I mentioned, that that is referring to to the devil, to Satan himself, from Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. If we go back to Genesis 3.1, the, fa the fact that Satan manifested as a snake suggests that temptation comes in disguise and quite unexpectedly. Uh, it's interesting that it often comes from a subordinate, someone over whom we have dominion. And that's certainly the case for Adam and Eve. I mean, they were walking and talking with the animals. They gave names to all the animals. They were certainly to have dominion over all the animals, as God told them to do. They were God's highest pinnacle of creation. God never gave animals a soul and created them in His image. Uh, God made man in His image. And so here we go with this serpent slithering up to Adam and Eve, and they're completely caught off guard. Not only that, but in the ancient Near East, the serpent was worshipped by pagans. And this goes all the way back to the early days of Luciferianism and Satanism uh, that I've talked about elsewhere. But they, they revere the, the Satan. They think that in this account in Genesis 3 that Lucifer, Satan, is the hero and that God is the spoiler. God is the antagonist. God is the, the bad guy. And so they revere Satan. They, and they, of course, uh, honor him uh, with this symbolism of a snake as he uh, came to Adam and Eve in that form. Uh, but they dedicate their books to Lucifer. They worship Lucifer the way you and I worship God. They sacrifice children to him, drink blood in his honor. And this is the, the whole long-standing Luciferian conspiracy that goes all the way back to the ancient Near East. And it began right here in the garden. By the way, King David in Psalm 2, a thousand years before Christ, uh, talks about this earthly conspiracy in which the kings of the earth, the world leaders, are conspiring together to try to break the cords and bonds of God's control. Satan tried to take over God's 
uh, domain in heaven by usurping his throne. And when that coup attempt failed, he was kicked out to, to the earth, and he's been trying to do the same thing uh, ever since. Um, so here the serpent was more uh, crafty, and uh, these pagans used the serpent uh, symbol to represent Satan. And God's Word reminds us that a pagan's symbol of life is, in fact, just the opposite. It's a cause of death. Divinity is not achieved by following pagan beliefs and symbols. And that was the promise of Satan here. Remember, we're going to get there in a moment in verse 5. But he says, you know, you, you will not surely die. You know, if you, if you eat this fruit, I'll help you live forever. But that's not how you achieve life. You achieve life through God and only God, the giver of life. The only, only the one who created life, ex nihilo, out of nothing, can give life. And that's God. And so Satan's way is the way of death, not life, even though, like everything else, he tries to uh, twist it. God, the creator, is the one that brings life. In John 1, verses 3 through 5, we read, All things were made through him, talking about Jesus Christ, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You get to verse 3 of John 1, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In 1 John chapter 5, we read, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. So Satan, uh, in, his, in his attempt to deceive, is now, as we're going to see in a few moments, gotten to the point where he's actually deceiving people into thinking he can create life, that he's the giver of life, and that if you'll follow him, you'll have life. And in reality, following Satan only brings death. And for an unbeliever, that means a double dose of death, because everyone, if the Lord tarries his coming, will experience physical death, but for the believer... The physical death, you know, going the way of all flesh, is simply the, the, the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. It's our instantaneous transfer from this earthly realm into the arms of Christ. But for an unbeliever, death takes you into immediate torment, and also you have no hope uh, of escaping the second death. There are two deaths that the Bible talks about, physical death and spiritual death. And that ultimate eternal death that Revelation chapter 20 talks about at the great white throne judgment is when uh, believers or unbelievers rather are then cast into their final place of torment, the lake of fire, along with Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So, uh, uh, you know, as you've heard me say many times, if you're born only once, you're going to face two deaths, a physical death and an eternal death. But if you're born twice, once physically and once by faith alone in Christ alone, experiencing the rebirth or the born-again experience by faith, if you're born twice, you only have to die once physically. And, of course, we know from the teaching of end times prophecy that there will be a generation of believers on earth at some point, and we hope it's us, that doesn't even have to die once because we will be caught up to meet the Lord in a twinkling of an eye, and this immortal will put on immortality, we will be changed, and we won't even face physical death. But uh, with that backdrop of Genesis, uh, I want to kind of walk us through the five core components of deception so that you have kind of a, a, a context and a basis for understanding some of the manifestations of this increasing deception that I think are yet another sign that the stage is being set uh, 
uh, prophetically. So the first step, and again, I talk about this in volume one of Spirit of the Antichrist, and you've probably heard me, if you've followed Not By Works Ministries for very many years, you've heard me talk about this uh, in other contexts. But uh, the, the five core components of deception start with questioning truth. Satan questioned God's word. Uh, he basically tried to imply that God's word is unreliable. It's questionable. So he said, has God indeed said? Has God indeed said? In other words, can we really trust God's word? Can we really trust anything, in fact, is what Satan wants people to think in this postmodern age. And that same question is at the heart of Pilate's question to Jesus some 4,000 years after the serpent confronted Eve in the garden when Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? So that's the first step is to question truth. And it implies that God's word, the Bible, is questionable. Uh, Satan planted a seed of doubt in Eve and deception always begins with a seed of doubt. But then the second component of deception, not only question truth, but misrepresent truth to misrepresent truth. Truth, as Satan says, is a matter of opinion, right? Uh, what did he go on to say? Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, is that really what God said? If you remember your Bible, going back to Genesis 2, that's not at all what God said. God said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of one tree you shall not eat. So Satan twisted uh, God's word and misrepresented the truth. And Eve, by the way, influenced by Satan's misrepresentation, likewise misrepresented the truth of God's word. She followed right along in his footsteps when she said in Genesis 3, 2 and 3, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, did God tell Eve not to touch it? He certainly did not. So God simply said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And not only that, in misrepresenting the truth, Eve also downplayed the consequence. She said, God has said, you shall not eat nor touch it, which he didn't say nor touch it. But then she adds, lest you die, lest you die. Again, is that what God said? Absolutely not. God said, you shall surely die. She makes it sound like God said we really shouldn't eat it, we shouldn't touch it, we might die. No, no. God said very plainly, don't eat this one tree. It's dangerous. This one fruit of this one tree, it's dangerous and it'll kill you. You will most definitely die. You shall surely die in the day thou eatest thereof, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. So it starts by questioning the truth, then misrepresenting the truth and implying that truth is a matter of opinion. You can make truth a moving target. It can be manipulated, spun. It's a matter of opinion. Uh, and that's the, the quest for deception. It always starts by questioning and misrepresenting truth. But then there's a third key component, and that is directly contradicting the truth. Now, by the time you get to this third uh, core component, this is where we see outright lies. Most people think this is where deception starts. But by the time you get to this step, you've probably already been deceived because of the questioning of truth and the misrepresenting of the truth. But Satan directly contradicts God. He basically says death and judgment are an illusion. He says, quote, you will not surely die. That is a blatant lie. He blatantly negated the penalty of death that God had given. Satan is a liar from the beginning, Jesus tells us in John 8, 44. And this is his lie, by the way. 
that you can sin and get away with it, that there is no consequence of sin, that, you know, death will not come about as a result of sin. That's a lie. Again, Jesus said, Satan does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he is speaking from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. In John 8, a little bit earlier, in the same context here in John chapter 8, Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees after the woman is caught in adultery, Jesus had said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The more you know the truth, the more easily you will recognize a lie. 1 John 2, 21, uh, John says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. 1 John 2, 21. So the way we can recognize blatant lies is by getting to know the truth. But Satan questioned truth. He misrepresented truth. Then he directly contradicted tr truth, essentially saying that death and judgment are an illusion. Eve should have immediately corrected Satan when he contradicted the truth. Instead, she sat passively by, the same way many believers today are sitting passively by when lies are being propagated and promoted everywhere we turn. Uh, by her silence, she agreed with this falsehood. Uh, you know, she should, have, she should have disagreed to agree. You know, a lot of people say, oh, let's agree to disagree. No, I think we need more believers that are willing to, to have the courage to disagree uh, to agree. You know, you're not... You may be entitled to your opinion, but no one is entitled to be wrong, right? Um, you're allowed to be wrong, of course, and many people are. Sometimes I'm wrong, right? I'm not perfect. But error and falsehood and lies, they are not an entitlement. And it's our job to be, you know, discerning and testing the spirits and calling out lies when we see them. So clearly the Bible had taught the wages of sin is death, uh, and yet Satan said, uh, you know, you will not uh, die, and that was a blatant lie. And then the fourth core component here is to shift the focus from truth to perception. So by the time he gets to the fourth core component, he's kind of got you where he wants you, right? He's questioned truth and gotten you to question truth. He's misrepresented the truth, twisted it a little then he directly contradicts it. But now he's going to come in for the kill, and he's going to start to shift the focus away from truth to perception. And the pathway to deception always includes shifting that focus away from the empirical fact and instead shifting into the nebulous realm of subjectivity. And uh, so Satan said in verse 5 of Genesis 3, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice those first three words, for God knows. Satan is basically trying to climb inside God's mind and claim to know God's motive in giving this prohibition to Adam and Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, well, here's why God said that. You know, he's just some big cosmic killjoy. He's trying to play games with you. Uh, let me tell you what, what he's really doing. Let me get inside his mind and give you God's motive. Uh, but that's not why God issued the warning to Adam and Eve. God issued the warning to Adam and Eve because he is a loving God. He created mankind for fellowship with them. He, he wanted to spend time in the intimacy of the, of the garden and fellowship with them. And he knew that if they, you know, ate the, the, the tree, or they ate the fruit from that tree, they would die and they'd be gone and they would suffer the consequence. And God is a just God. He can't ever wink and nod at sin. He can't tell you one thing and then come back later and say, oh, just kidding, you know, that death thing that I talked about, forget it. I didn't really mean it. Go ahead, have all you want. 
then, then God would have proven himself to be a liar and untrustworthy and unfaithful. He's a just God. But when Satan is shifting the focus by trying to you know, explain why God said what he said, he's essentially uh, you know, telling you that perception is more important than reality. Uh, and you know, reality doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. And today, that's the case. We live in an age of virtual reality uh, rather than reality. And, uh, and in just a moment, I'm going to give you, you know, some classic examples of that that really should be troubling to us as we see us getting closer and closer to the return of the Lord. Um, but this is the age of you know, uh, style over substance, form over function. Uh, it's the age where the makeup man is more important than the speechwriter, and speculation is more important than empirical evidence. People have little use for facts anymore. These days, it's extremely difficult to look beyond the presentation, the style, uh, the theme music, uh, to the facts of the matter. And it's all about spin and propaganda. John Adams, one of the founding uh, fathers and second president of the United States, setting aside for a moment his role in you know, kind of the, the New World Order back then. Uh, but he said, uh, cleverly, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. This tendency today to ignore facts in favor of perception manifests itself in all kinds of contexts, but most notably uh, for our discussion of the the spirit of the Antichrist and this increasing deception that we see as a setting of the stage for the great deception of the tribulation. Uh, it's most often at play anytime someone questions the, the official government narrative about something. And, you know, I, uh, of course, expose a lot of lies in, in my two-volume set, Spirit of the Antichrist. Some of them people uh, agree with some of them don't. You know, there's enough in that book series to, 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 to be able to pick your poison, and you know, you can, you know, disagree with me on any number of things, and and I'm not uh, surprised by that. But the fact of the matter is, before you disagree, you might want to do your research, because uh, I certainly did mine, and I, I again doesn't mean I'm right. Uh, obviously, I think I'm right, or I wouldn't have put it in the book if I thought I was wrong. That would be silly. Uh, so I'm pretty confident in the the conclusions that I reach. Uh, about the Luciferian conspiracy, but it is frustrating sometimes that basically people dismiss it with the imperious wave of a hand and say, oh, that could never be true, or that would, the government would never do that. And I'm saying, okay, well, I mean, if that's your you know, knee-jerk reaction, I can't help you, but if you want to take some time and actually look at the facts of the matter rather than respond emotionally, you might come to a different conclusion. Ben Shapiro in his book said, facts don't care about your feelings, right? Uh, and uh, that's certainly... Uh, true. We need to respond factually. And Satan concludes the five core components of deception, going back to Genesis 3, by simply inventing new meaning for truth. He basically says uh, words have no meaning, <laughs> and the truth is a social construct. Uh, you can make it mean uh, whatever you want. I talked this weekend about a new model for truth. I think it's called the blogger's model for truth, if I remember right. Uh, and it's the idea that, you know, you post something out on the Internet and then you let everybody vote in the comments of whether they think it's true or not. And whatever the community decides, that becomes truth. Uh, that's a terrible idea. I mean, you know, mankind has fallen. We are prone to deception. We are more easily deceived today than at any other time in human history. Why in the world will we want to leave uh, the ultimate arbitration of truth up to us? See, truth is empirical. Truth is inherent. Something is either true or it's false. It doesn't get to be declared true or false by popular vote. Uh, I can remember watching years ago a 
Fox News uh, uh, program uh, where they had a series of talking heads sitting around a table talking about uh, something. And I forget what the subject matter of the day was, but I never will forget one of the uh, commentators said, you know, uh, you know, if we don't do something about this, this is going to become the accepted truth, as if, you know, we can control what true is. And there was some, you know, false narrative that was being put forth. And this commentator was like, we better put an end to this because otherwise it's going to be the accepted truth. No, it either is true or it's not. We can't do anything about it except expose it if it's a lie. But we need not worry that it somehow is going to magically turn into truth if it's not uh, truth. And so Satan, uh, again, going back to verse 5, says, uh, you know, you will be like God. If you eat this, you'll be like God. God didn't say anything remotely resembling you will be like me. And yet Satan invents new meanings to God's word. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, when, when God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die, apparently what he really meant is you'll be like me. And that's not what he meant. And the gathering cloud of deception that is intensifying the closer we get to the return of Christ as Satan and his co-conspirators seek to take over the world, is most profoundly seen in this fifth core component where you invent new meaning of words. In fact, that's why the atheist a German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, I fear we are not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. And as the minute you make words no longer have meaning, it is game over. Uh, and so that's essentially what, why I believe, one of the many reasons I believe we're knocking on the door of the return of Christ, because he's conquered, Satan has conquered language, he's conquered gender, he's conquered marriage, he's conquered just about everything you read about in Genesis 1 through 11 that is part of the foundational core components of humanity. Uh, so there you have it, there you have uh, the, the, the five key elements of deception. Question truth, misrepresent truth, directly contradict truth, shift the focus from truth to perception, and then invent new meaning uh, to truth. And so as we think about the you know, increasing deception, I want to close out our uh, time here by looking at some things that I've, I've really uh, studied a lot here recently. We did a podcast on it, uh, and that is the idea of you know, artificial intelligence and particularly chat uh, GPT. Uh, it's put out by a company called OpenAI. I encourage you to go back and listen to a fascinating podcast I did a couple of weeks ago. It, it was uh, called ChatGPT, uh, and you can look for search for that in the title uh, with a, a good friend of mine and, and technology expert, Shane. Uh, but it's a fascinating uh, subject where basically we are seeing, you know, all kinds of evidence today that you can create narratives. You can create uh, truth. In fact, I just got a story, saw a story today someone sent me from msn.com in which artificial intelligence is starting to pick who gets laid off. So companies are using artificial intelligence not just for marketing and advertising and content creation and so forth. They're using it even to manage people. It's getting to be where the, hu the actual biblical human interface has, has gone completely away. But uh, I wanted to share this uh, this uh, one example of what ChatGPT is. And for those of you that haven't, uh, aren't familiar with it or haven't listened to my previous podcast, ChatGPT is basically an artificial intelligence te uh, service where you can give it a prompt, type in a prompt, and it will spit out an answer. In some cases, multiple paragraphs, entire research papers, 
uh, we talked about several examples uh, uh, where, like, you could say, hey, uh, tell me what the difference between uh, Calvinism and dispensationalism is. And as my friend Shane said, who's an academician, that's where we first met when, we, when I was in uh, academics for 12 years teaching at the college and graduate levels, uh, and he's just a, one of the most brilliant men I know, and he said, you know, when he put in that prompt, uh, you know, researching this, he's also a, a director of distance ed at a school, but uh, he, uh, he was amazed at the research. He said if this had been a research paper submitted at a master's level college or, or baccalaureate level college, he would have given it an A. <laughs> and, and yet it was written by, uh, you know, a computer. And it's not simply cutting and pasting data from the Internet. It's coming up with complete new uh, clauses and, and thoughts and ideas and anal analysis and so forth. In my second volume, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, in the section on transhumanism, I think it's Chapter 3, I actually you know, include a transcript of a Google engineer who talks to uh, an AI and interviews him. And he became so concerned that the AI had become sentient and had really crossed over that he sounded the alarm and blew the whistle and he got fired for doing it. So this is some pretty serious stuff, but I want to give you a humorous example and just show you how powerful AI has become. So um, the, my friend put in a prompt here uh, and he told ChatGPT, write a story about my wife who used to be the captain of the Kingwood High School deer hunting harpoon team. Now, as Shane mentioned on our podcast, he was trying to be as ridiculous and absurd as he can to kind of stretch the limits and see, is there anything I can ask about that this artificial intelligence will not have the ability to reflect on and sound halfway intelligent? And he thought, surely something like this, he would come back and say, ah, I can't do it. Well, listen to what it said. He, again, the prompt is, write a story about my wife, who used to be the captain of the Kingwood High School deer hunting harpoon team. And so here's the answer from the ChatGPT AI. It was a cold November morning in the small town of Kingwood, and the air was crisp with the promise of a fresh deer hunt. My wife, a skilled outdoors woman and former captain of the Kingwood High School deer hunting harpoon team, was raring to go. She suited up in her camouflage hunting gear and grabbed her trusty harpoon, a, a gift from her grandfather who had passed down his love of hunting to her. As we set out into the woods, I could see the excitement and determination in her eyes. We hiked for miles, tracking a particularly elusive doe that had eluded hunters for years. My wife's expertise and knowledge of the woods proved invaluable, and she was able to anticipate the doe's movements and lead us closer to our prey. As the doe emerged from the brush, my wife took aim and launched the harpoon with deadly accuracy. The doe fell to the ground, and my wife approached with a triumphant grin. We spent the rest of the day field dressing the dough and preparing it for the long journey home. As we made our way back to civilization, I couldn't help but feel proud of my wife and her, with her impressive hunting skills. Despite the challenges we faced and the long hours spent in the cold, it was days like these that made our marriage strong and our bond unbreakable. And as we sat down to a hearty meal of venison that evening, I knew that my wife's passion for hunting would always be a special part of our lives together. Now, I mean, that is, it is, it is bizarre on so many levels. First of all, you, you keep in mind that this is an artificial intelligence writing this. Everything that I just read, this program, for lack of a better descriptive term, came up with on its own. It's not searching the internet and harvesting for sentences here and there and pasting them together. It is thinking through the prompt, which was to write a story about my wife harpooning a deer, 
and and it wrote the story and it's just unreal and then then they do the same thing by the way in terms of artificial intelligence with digital images uh open ai that same company has a, a, a software called doll e this is doll e2 that you see on the screen there it's an ai system that can create realistic images and art from a description in a natural language so you could type in any prompt and it will create an image for you and this is changing reality before our very eyes i mean literally month by month we are seeing exponential advances where companies are shutting down because their services are no longer needed you can just pay an artificial intelligence service like chat beach gpt that has a monthly fee and and get rid of your entire marketing team uh, you, in the radio business, we have a radio show, been in the radio and podcasting business for a long time. Uh, now companies are doing away with, uh, you know, getting bumper music or, or, you know, beginning and ending music, the open and the close, uh, the intro and the outtake. Uh, they're, they're using, instead of using copyrighted music, which you have to get permission for, and in some cases pay royalties for, they're just creating their own through artificial intelligence and you don't have to employ a songwriter to do that all you need is a service like this uh you know that open ai provides and you type in what you want kind of the style and kind of how you want it to sound describe it and it'll spit something out for you and the problem with this again as we see this increasing deception even though it has its positive uses in the sense of making things easier and providing new opportunities i mean sure it'd be nice to, to uh, you know, to, to be able to create images without having to pay an artist and, and so forth. But the, the problem is it blurs the distinction between uh, fact and fiction, between reality and not. And so we see, you know, companies now taking AI-generated photos and then turning them into 3D digital humans. So in other words, you can create a fake person who does not exist describe it, you know, brown hair, brown eyes, you know, broad smile, narrow cheekbone, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and they'll create a person. And, and then you can turn that into a 3D digital human. And then you can implant it with some kind of computer interface so that it is, you know, basically a computer, uh, you know, not like one of those Roomba vacuums that, you know, spins around or one of those computer dogs or something, but an actual human looking, uh, you know, human being. And that's what they're doing. I mean, I can remember as a kid, the old commercial for the butter substitute or butter alternative called I can't believe it's not butter. Well, now we've gotten into the age of I can't believe it's not human. I mean, literally, you won't know whether you're dealing with a human being or not. It's this notion that vitalism is dead. Vitalism is the concept or the notion that there's a fundamental difference between living and dead organisms, between living objects and inanimate objects. And this ideology is one of the many things that the Luciferians and the transhumanists are mocking today, and it's disappearing. I mean, it really is disappearing. We are losing touch in terms of deception, because of deception in these great last days, with the distinction between reality and fiction. And of course, our friend Klaus Schwab, I, I use that term facetiously, of course, uh, told us this is what was going to happen with, with the so-called singularity, when they've finally conquered the one frontier of life that they've not been able to conquer. And by the way, even when they conquer it, they will not have really conquered it because they didn't create life out of nothing. They're using 
you know, biodigital convergence and technology and brain-computer interfaces and things like that to try to control life. Uh, but uh, even though they can make things like I showed here a second ago that look human, realistic humanoid robots, they'll never be able to truly create life, but they'll think they have. And here's what Klaus Schwab, let me give you a few salient quotes uh, from this leading Luciferian. He said, fourth industrial revolution technologies will not stop at becoming part of the physical world around us. They will become part of us, end quote. He says, quote, today's external devices from wearable computers to virtual reality headsets will almost certainly become implanted in our bodies and brains. Go back and listen to last week's Prophecy Night when I talked about uh, Yuval Noah Harari, I think it was last week, and some of the things that, that he has said or done. And I also talked about it on Saturday at the conference. It was session number four on the Great Satanic Reset. So um, here's another quote from uh, Klaus Schwab. Quote, active implantable microchip chips will break the skin barrier of our bodies and smart tattoos, biological computing, and custom-designed organisms will be common. A smart dust, he says, arrays of full computers with antennas, each much smaller than a grain of sand, can now organize themselves inside the body once injected. Um, he says these technologies will operate within our own biology and change how we interface with the world. They are capable of crossing the boundaries of body and mind, enhancing our physical abilities, and even having a lasting impact on life itself. Another Klaus Schwab quote, These technologies can intrude into the hitherto private space of our minds, reading our thoughts and influencing our behavior. Implanted devices, he says, will likely also help to communicate thoughts normally expressed verbally through a built-in smartphone. And he puts that in quotes. And potentially unexpressed thoughts or moods by reading brain waves and other signals. And so I've talked about this before, but this is getting into pre-crime and some of those types of things. They'll be able to allegedly tell what you're what you're thinking by connecting a computer to your brain, and so they can say, "Hey, you you are mad. You are about to kill somebody. You're going to go to jail for murder, even though you never committed it." Um, and so again, this is just Satan's attempt to control and to mimic God. Remember, God knows all things. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. Uh, everything is laid bare before Him. That's not true of Satan, but he's trying his best to learn how to read our minds through technology. And his human co-conspirator here, Klaus Schwab, is at the helm of this. Uh, another Schwab quote, the next trending business model might involve someone trading access to his or her thoughts for the time-saving option of typing a social media post by thought alone. Now, just think about that. In other words, someone might say to me, hey, we need you to write an article, you know, for Harbinger's Daily or something like that. And, of course, Harbinger's Daily would never do this. Uh, and there's some great folks over there. But uh, they might say, hey, you know, we need you to write an article. Just, you know, sit down and think about it for a while, and we'll, we'll automatically grab it over the Internet from your mind. And you don't even have to key it in. You don't even have to type it in. Uh, one more, uh, Klaus Schwab says, as capabilities in this area improve, the temptation for law enforcement agencies and courts to use techniques to determine the, quote, likelihood of criminal activity, that I, I say, quote, this is, I'm emphasizing what, what he's saying here. Uh, let, me, let me start over. As capabilities in this area improve, the temptation for law enforcement agencies and courts to use techniques to determine the likelihood of criminal activity, to assess guilt, or even possibly retrieve memories directly from people's brains will increase. Even crossing a national border 
might one day involve a detailed brain scan to assess an individual's security risk. Now, again, think about what he's saying here. He envisions a day you know, where you can be called into court, they can hook up a computer to your brain, and they can see what you saw you know, at a certain appointed time. And if you claim I wasn't there, but they can retrieve from your memory uh, something that in their mind proves that you were there, then you're sunk. Now, here's the real problem with all of this. First of all, they really believe they can accomplish this, and they have already accomplished many of the things that we're talking about. They just haven't rolled it out into the mainstream yet. But the point is, by blurring the distinction between reality and virtual reality, it opens the door wide to all kinds of fraud. And so, as I mentioned uh, uh, in the uh, ChatGPT podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I think I mentioned it this weekend in my conference in Florida, so the implications of that for the criminal justice system are far-reaching. I mean, you can easily create fake voice, fake videos, you know, uh, fake narratives, you know, and, and introduce them as evidence in court, and you can be found guilty even though you had absolutely nothing to do with the charges against you. Yet they create a fake video that looks just like you, you know, robbing the store or, or you know, hurting somebody or whatever the crime that you're charged with. So it's really difficult now. And by the way, this has been going on for a long time on a much less uh, significant scale and technologically advanced scale. But, I, you know, that you can go back to, you know, the 1990s and they were able to fabricate voice using voice technology, you know, make people think it was your voice. Um, and that part's easy. And so there's no question that, you know, with today's technology, uh, you know, this poses all sorts of problems. And so I just wanted to give those examples. It, it's just yet another, you know, um, example, uh, you know, to, to, of how deception is really increasing. And this has got to be getting closer and closer to the fulfillment of prophecy. So a lot more that, uh, that I could talk about. I want to encourage you, by the way, uh, to check out my session from yesterday. It was session three, and it was all about, uh, you know, the top 10 lies impacting us uh, today. I think it was called the Great Last Days Deception, because I, I talk about 10 lies that you probably believe, uh, maybe not all of them, and certainly not all of you that are listening, because we have some pretty awesome listeners that, that are pretty awake and recognize what's going on in the world. But I would go back and listen to that session if you can't listen to all of them, because I, I talk about 10 lies that I really think have a stranglehold on people. So so that's uh, part four of uh, The Time Is Now, Why Bible Prophecy Matters Now More Than Ever, our Tuesday night prophecy night. Again, thank you so much for your patience, as we've now had to do last week and today, uh, via video rather than in person. Um, but I love the in-person sessions. We look forward to starting those again next Tuesday. Again, Lord willing, with the weather in Colorado, you never know. We might be preempted again. But uh, Lord willing, uh, I'll be back in town. I'm actually flying back between conferences here in Florida so I can preach at Plum Creek and do Prophecy Night, and then I'll fly back to Florida, rejoin my family, and, and get ready for the big uh, uh, conference there in uh, Orlando, which, by the way, I know they sold out the in-person tickets, over a 1,000 people, but you can still get tickets to stream that, uh, and you do have to purchase tickets to stream it, but uh, you can go to the, the link on our website uh, or just go to orlandoprophecysummit.com, 
and uh, purchase the streaming links uh, for that. But I'm so honored to be uh, speaking at that uh, coming up March 2nd through the 5th with some other great prophecy uh, teachers. And, you know, prophecies like any area of theology, it, it makes some strange bedfellows, so to speak, sometimes. I may not agree with everything every one of these speakers uh, teaches, and I'm certain they don't agree with everything that I teach. Uh, but in general, we all understand the pre-tribulational return of Christ. Uh, they teach about the rapture, and we understand that, uh, you know, things are heating up and we're heading into the end times. And so, uh, again, uh, next Tuesday, Lord willing, we'll be meeting in person, and that means we will be live streaming. Uh, because of my schedule and all that's going on here in Florida, I wasn't able to live stream today's, and so I pre-recorded it, uh, and then we have uh, posted it here for you, uh, and that's available for you to watch and spread the word and, and hopefully let other people know about it. I want to mention once again, uh, if you have not yet checked out uh, Spirit of the Antichrist Volumes 1 and 2, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org. Also at our online store, we have a number of other uh, uh, resources and books, uh, a lot of end times books like uh, my book, Great Last Days Deception, and my book, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. So you can check those out. also want to encourage you to check out the good folks at Red Pill Prints who have created some NBW Ministries uh, merchandise that you can uh, purchase to kind of help spread the word. Uh, remember, at Not By Works, uh, that's what the NBW stands for. Our passion is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel message. So when someone sees you wearing a shirt or a cap or a sweatshirt or have a water bottle or a coffee mug or you know one of those types of things, and they say, hey, tell me about Not By Works Ministries or tell me about NBW Ministries, you can tell, tell them that uh, we are a ministry that is passionate about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, and that you cannot be saved by works, but only by grace uh, through faith. Uh, you can also check out all of our podcasts. We've uh, uploaded a lot this weekend because all seven sessions of my conference at uh, Claremont, uh, Florida, were uploaded. Uh, we also want to mention a new DVD series. Now, for those of you that followed our ministry for a while, this might not uh, be new to you, uh, but my very popular series, What in the World is Going On, an eight-part video series that up until now was only available as a purchase for streaming, uh, is now available on DVD. So you can get the eight-disc DVD series, What in the World is Going On, that talks all about uh, you know, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, secret societies, preparedness, a biblical view of preparedness, uh, lots of stuff that, you know, we talk about in other books and series, but it's just a different, uh, you know, setting and a different uh, collection of those uh, topics. So check that out at the Not By Works online store. You can read the uh, session titles and things, and hopefully that will be something that will be a blessing for you. So again, thanks for listening and watching. Uh, I want to encourage you to tune in again next week for Prophecy Night on Tuesday, February the 28th. Lord willing, we will be live streaming that from uh, my home church there in Sedalia, Colorado, Plum Creek Chapel. But until then, God bless you, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. Take care, everyone.